Great to be with you uh, today, and we're carrying on with this big questions idea. Uh, Some of you will have been around, we've done this twice already, uh, first Sunday of every month. We tackle a big question, a big objection to Christianity, or a big thought about life, God, and the universe, and all that jazz. And I want to say that I think it's particularly appropriate that we're looking at big questions today on the day that Charlotte and Dan are getting baptised. And I say that uh, because if Christianity is not true... And Christianity is not experientially good and rich and satisfying, then, sorry, Charlotte and Dan, but you are wasting your time. Like, you are making a big mistake today, aren't you? If you think about it. If you publicly declare you're throwing yourself quite literally into the deep end, uh, which might be a struggle for a little Dan, but um, quite literally throwing yourself into the deep end of Christianity, uh, and yet, sorry, uh, and yet it isn't true. Uh, and it isn't good, it isn't uh, existentially satisfying, it's not experientially good. If it doesn't lead to your flourishing as a person in our society, these sorts of questions. If, if it's not true and it's not beautiful, then why throw your life into it? And that's the heart behind this series, really, is to look at the Christian faith and ask those questions. Is it actually, tr- is it actually real? And if it is, is it good or does it make us less, does it oppress us in those sorts of ways? So that's the heart behind this series. And today we land on one of the most important questions, not just for Charlotte and Dan and not just even for our lives, but I want to say for our beautiful city uh, of Birmingham. And I want to make the claim that this question is crucial on the world stage at the moment. If you've been following kind of the news in the last few weeks, you'll know that this sort of question And how we handle this sort of question is huge right now. And the question is this, how can anyone claim there's just one true religion, right? How can anybody stand up in what we would all hope to be a a modern, uh, open, diverse world? How can anybody stand up and say, hey, my religious conviction is right, and you over there, and you, and you, and you, yours isn't? But mine is true. Is that okay? Is that not arrogant? Is that not divisive? Is that not quite imperialistic? Is that not quite fundamentalist in those ways to say one religious conviction is better than others? Now, I don't know if anyone has seen the film The Life of Pi um, or read the book, if you're really sophisticated. Um, more of a film guy myself, but um, the life of Pi, so predictably, follows the life of a, of a guy called Pi, um, and he is shipwrecked. Um, there's a tiger, there's a whale at some point. It's really cool. Um, and whilst Pi is shipwrecked, the notion of the film, and presumably the book, is that whilst he's shipwrecked and lost at sea physically, and is floating around and goes to all these different places and explores. He's also experiencing that spiritually, that he's lost at sea spiritually, and he's trying to land somewhere, and he's exploring all these different worldviews, and where does he end up? And Pai grows up in India as a Hindu, but then upon meeting a priest, becomes a Christian, but he doesn't uh, reject his Hinduism and adopt Christianity in its place. He, he thinks that he can adopt both, And that would be something that's very important to him, as you see throughout the film. He then becomes a Muslim as well. And he sees no reason for this to be a problem until one day in a slightly awkward scene, uh, all of his religious leaders bump into each other, and he's there too. And they sort of realise, in what must be kind of the religious leader equivalent to finding out that you've been cheated on, um, they sort of realise, what? You're dabbling in all of these religions? 
And whereas in that culture and in that film, kind of uh, so far the religious leaders have been portrayed as being very mature and very wise, suddenly they look very young and childish and ignorant, really. As they begin to squabble, no, 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 you should follow my truth. No, shush, my truth, my truth. No, not yours, mine. And Pi, who has been this lost kind of floating on a boat guy who's young, suddenly looks very grounded and mature and enlightened as he sees, this is a bit petulant, guys. We're above that now. I can say any religious opinion is valid and adopt as many as I want or don't want, and that's okay. And I want to ask you, what do you think of that? How do you feel about that idea? Because it is in stark contrast, uh, just to take the pressure off myself as the speaker and put it firmly onto Dan and Charlotte, it is in stark contrast to what Dan and Charlotte are doing today, which is they're actually publicly throwing their all into one specific conviction, Christianity, aren't they? Uh, As Jonathan explained about baptism, I don't know if you've ever seen a baptism, they're really cool. You should totally come. Um, But when someone kind of gets baptised, as he said, they go down into the water, and we can confirm there won't be drownings because we have a lifeguard, which is is exciting. We have our own lifeguard. It's all very safe. And as they go down into the water and they come up, that is a picture of what happened to Jesus, isn't it? It's not a picture of what happened to theism or a picture of what happened to... There's something more, I think, than this. It's a very specific claim to say, I want to associate myself with Jesus and what happened to him. As they go down, it symbolises being washed of our sins. And, and that's not a claim of, I believe that there's more after we die. That's, I believe Jesus Christ of Nazareth has taken away my sin. And when they get baptised, won't, someone won't say, I hereby... I mean, no one will say the word hereby. But I now baptise you in the name of there's a God... But they will say the words, I'll baptise you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is a very Christian sentence. (laughs) So Dan and Charlotte are are saying publicly, on a screen, in a swimming pool, I choose this religious conviction. And in a multi-faith city, is that all right? (laughs) That's our question. Is that okay? Does that make them divisive? Does that make them ignorant? Does it make them bigots? Um, Getting nervous? (laughs) Well, let's see. I think uh, generally I find myself more attracted instinctively to the life of pie roots because it feels much more friendly and it feels much more open. And I think that's because um, of a word that is a buzzword in our culture, this word, uh, tolerance. Now, that is a, a word that in kind of political speeches and academic thought is huge over the last few years. It's, it's the word that we as a culture are, are trying to live with as we explore what it means to be a truly uh, multi-faith, multi-ethnic uh, country. Uh, listen to David Cameron. Uh, just saying, these are not representative of the views of Church Central necessarily, though some people might be conservative, some people might not be, and it's all fine, and this is not what I'm saying. Okay? So, listen to David Cameron making a speech, his kind of flagship speech on his uh, government's response to extremism. He made this speech in our city uh, a few years ago, and he said, over generations we have built something extraordinary in Britain, a successful, multiracial, multi-faith democracy. It's open, diverse, welcoming... And he's not just stating facts here, he's showing how important it is to us. These characteristics are as British as queuing and talking about the weather, which we all love. So this is a big deal for us right now, to, to, to live in a, in a diverse, peaceful, open way 
is a big deal to us. And into that context, it seems, it seems like saying all religions are equally valid is the way we must go in order to have a truly diverse, peaceful, tolerant country. It feels like that's true. And that's why people find Christianity really offensive. There's probably loads of reasons why people find Christianity offensive. But I think this is, at its heart, this is why. Because Jesus Christ, you know, kind of hippie, you know, loves everyone, Jesus, right? Jesus says something really scandalous. Quite a few things, actually, through his life. He says this in John's Gospel. He says, I am the way. Do you want to know the way to God? I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the, the exclusive fountain of true knowledge about the divine. And I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now that is a bold claim today. It was a bold claim then as well. And it got him, well, it got him killed, really, in the end. Not quite the end, but that was cringy. It's a bold claim And what I want to do is explore, does that claim make Jesus a dangerous, arrogant bigot? And does following him make us that way? If you were to become a follower of Jesus, are you doomed to be one of those people who are so divisive and arrogant? And what I want to do is explore this in three questions. And the questions will come up just to give you kind of a head start on where we're going. Firstly, I want to ask, is it always dangerous to make this is the right way claims? Then, is it really humble and enlightened to say all religions are equal? And then lastly, I want to ask, what does true tolerance look like? And then, slightly boldly, at the end, I want to suggest, uh, with just my final two minutes, why I think that following Jesus actually gives you a unique responsibility and unique motivation to be someone who brings different people together, not divides them. And that's a slightly bold claim, but I think Christianity has a unique power to do that. And that's where we'll land. But let's go with these three questions to start with. Uh, let's kick off predictably with question one. Is it always dangerous to make this is the right way statements? You know, that's where you get caliphates, isn't it? Or you get dictatorships. And I want to say... Some, this is the right way claims through history have been extraordinarily vile and dangerous and oppressive. So think of Nazi Germany with its one vision of humanity and one way to think about this. And that has ravaged so many millions of lives. And that is a dangerous thing. But some one way claims are not dangerous, right? Some, this is the way we should think about this statements aren't dangerous. So let me give you one, slightly frivolous, but pilots should be sober when flying. Okay? Now, who disagrees with that? Who thinks it's kind of logical or kind of open to disagree with that? We would all pretty much go, no, like, don't be drunk, please. Or at least on the flights I'm flying on. Pilots should be sober when flying. Politics should not be corrupt. Okay, I believe one thing about that, and I disagree with other opinions on that. Uh, we should care about refugees. I just think one way of thinking about that is right. And I wouldn't headbutt someone who disagreed, but I wouldn't think it was equally true, right? Female genital mutilation is wrong. 
I just think that. <laughs> I think most of us think one thing on that. Then just do a, a quick analogy. Ruth, who uh, is my wife, who now does have her car keys, praise the Lord, um, uh, is a doctor. And in her junior doctor years and in her med school years, she would have had to go to loads of surgeries and kind of watch and normally pass out, actually, which would have been slightly awkward. She wasn't doing them. Um, and while she's, uh, imagine this, while she's uh, kind of watching a surgery that's happening to your loved one, just to raise the stakes, okay, happening to your most precious person, and she's there, and she's looking into the kind of open chest cavity of your loved one. And the beeps are going, and the lights are there. And she just walks over to the side of the room, and she gets uh, the mop bucket from the corner. And she brings it in, and it's disgusting. It's full of grey, what used to be water. And just imagine she kind of gets it up. Can you smell it? It's disgusting. And she just rings it into the open body of your loved one. Okay, are you coming with me on this visual journey? This didn't happen. It's not a true story. Um, and then she gets out of her pocket kind of a rusty pen knife from the toolbox and just starts hacking, just, oh, just you know. Oh, just. And then she just, she begins to sort of shake and you think, what's happening? And, and she takes off her mask and she just sneezes, bleh, just sneezes into dripping, it's not, she's not here, so don't visualise it, but uh, into the open body of your beloved person. And at that moment, do you say... Do you know what? Each way of thinking about surgery is equally valid. And if you're sincere in it, and it means a lot to you, and who am I to put my opinion onto you? You would never say that. You would say that is not the right way to think about surgery. This is the right way to think about surgery. Based on evidence, based on uh, people's wisdom, you would say that. So you see what I'm saying? We're all making this is the right way to think about these claims all the time. And that doesn't make things dangerous. Do you know what claims are dangerous? Dangerous claims are dangerous, aren't they? All right? But pilots should be sober when flying isn't a dangerous claim. It's a very safe one, actually. It's a very life-giving claim. And what if Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life is not a dangerous claim, but a life-giving one. What if the world is lost and Jesus says, I am the way? That'd be okay, wouldn't it? What if the world was confused? Just imagine that. And Jesus said, I'm the truth. And what if the world, slightly controversially, was dying and Jesus said, I'm the life? That wouldn't be dangerous. Let's flip the coin then. Let's go to the other side of this question. If we said it's not always dangerous to make this is one way to think about this claims, then is it really humble and enlightened to say all religions are equal? And it sounds very humble, doesn't it, to say, uh, hey, look, every religious conviction is, is, is equal. It's the same. It's, it feels like it's a humble thing. I wouldn't wish to suggest that mine is better. It's a humble thing. And I think that's right. It kind of feels that way. Many of you will have heard the famous analogy shared originally by Buddha, and I'm now going to make it my own, uh, of the blind men and the elephant. Who has heard that analogy or something similar? You may have heard the analogy of the mountain and the paths. You may have heard that. We'll get to that later. If that's your favourite religious pluralism analogy, we'll get there. But let's start with the elephant. And the analogy goes like this. There is an elephant. Okay, with me? Picture it. Elephant. And then some blind men come up to the elephant and they begin to 
uh, seek to, through their understanding and what they can experience, articulate what the elephant is. And the elephant represents kind of divine truth or ultimate reality or whatever. And as these people come up to it, you know the story, one guy feels the leg of the elephant and he says, oh, the elephant is like a tree because that's his experience. And someone else feels the tail and it's like a snake and someone else feels the the trunk and it's like a bigger snake and someone feels the side and it's a wall, it's a leathery wall. That is ultimate reality. And the whole point of it is each person's individual understanding of truth is fine, but it would be so arrogant for leg guy to say, I know everything about the elephant. It's a leg. You know, each person has their own understanding, but it would be arrogant to say, I see the whole picture. And so the idea is that it feels very humble then to say, you couldn't possibly ever claim to know the whole picture. Now, slightly technical moment, but this is worth it. Okay, trust me. Let's think about this together. What is the problem with that analogy? What is the position that you have to take in the analogy in order to assess that these blind men can only see part of the truth? Where do you have to be in the analogy? What do you have to be able to see in the analogy? Well, here's the thing. In your mind's eye, when I told you this analogy, you could see the whole elephant, couldn't you? You could see the men coming up, feeling feels a bit strange, you know, touching an elephant. You could see that in your mind's eye. Because in order to say each individual person can only see part of the truth, you are actually assuming that you can see the whole elephant. You're actually claiming a type of knowledge that is superior to any of the individuals. And so you're actually committing the very thing that you're criticising. Think of it in a, in a mountain, paths up the mountain. Can you see them? All the paths, some of them go straight up, really steep. Some of them go, you know, a bit slower for the parents, you know, that sort of thing. And then there's the top of the mountain, and that's where religious truth is. And all religions are equally valid paths up, they just go different ways. But as you visualise that analogy, where are you? You are zoomed back, maybe in a helicopter or like a penthouse suite over the road. You can see the whole mountain, Right? And so actually to say sentences like, do you know what, I think Muslims and Christians and Jews and Hindus and Buddhists all have part of the truth, is actually akin to saying, I can see more of the picture than Muslims, Christians, Jews, Hindus and Buddhists. Which isn't actually humble, is it? (laughs) Particularly if you said, I can see more of the picture than Muhammad, Jesus, Buddha, They could only see part of it, but I know that they can only see part of it. That's actually accidentally, and no one's trying to be arrogant with that, but that's accidentally a really arrogant position to take. I don't think it's humble. And is it enlightened? Does it see the world correctly to say all religions are equally valid? The argument often goes like this. All religions are equally valid because at their core, they are the same. And on their periphery, they're different, you know, they have different hairstyles, they they eat different food, they worship in different buildings, but essentially they all agree on the main stuff, and so they're all the same. I just want to ask, is that true? Is that true? Uh, If you're uh, very educated and you like seeing things in graphs and tables, um, this is your moment. We have a table. Um, And what this just shows is four world religions... And their understanding of something as peripheral to their faith as what is true about God. Okay, that's quite central. Okay, and you just see by glancing at it that they don't agree on the central stuff, right? 
actually there's a huge amount of difference. So Buddhism believes there's no personal God at all. Uh, Islam, uh, Allah, is one. He is the one true God. And it is essential to his glory, to his brilliance, that he is singular, that he is, he is one. And yet Christians say Jesus is Lord and worship the Father, Son, and Spirit, Jesus being God the Son, this God who's one God but in three persons. So those things are not equal. They are not the same, you see? And it's not just peripheral things that are different. And actually, to say that they are the same, to shout in Birmingham, Muslims and Christians and Jews and Hindus and Sikhs and Buddhists believe essentially the same, is actually a really, really patronizing thing to shout. And I know it comes from a good heart, but to say to a Muslim who believes Allah is God, that they basically think Jesus is Lord, is not going to go well. And to say to a Christian who thinks Jesus is Lord, you essentially believe in no personal God like a Buddhist, is not true. If you're here as an atheist, and I say you basically are Hindu, really, it's just that you kind of have different preferences on the surface, you would... You know, well, you might headbutt me. Speaking of headbutting a lot today, aren't we? It's just not true. So is it always arrogant to make this is the one way to think about this claims? Shown no. Is it really humble and enlightened to say, oh, they're all the same? Well, maybe not. Uh, But here's the thing, isn't it? If we actually live like this, if we actually kind of hold our different opinions and, and we acknowledge they're different, doesn't that inevitably lead to division and hatred and fascism and extremism and fighting and ghettos? And we don't want that. We want to be an open, diverse, tolerant society. Doesn't this sort of stuff inevitably lead to intolerance? And to ask that, I want to just ask my third question. What is true tolerance? What does true tolerance look like? Here's a definition of tolerance from the Oxford Dictionary. The ability or willingness to allow without interference the existence of opinions or behaviour that one dislikes or disagrees with. Do you see that? Do you see that tolerance is not saying all things are equally valid? Because you can't disagree with something in that way. It's saying uh, living with opinions or behaviour that you dislike or disagree with. Tolerance actually depends upon disagreement in its very definition. And tolerance cannot exist. David Cameron's vision of Britain, which you may think is a good thing, can't exist if we all say we all believe the same, really. Because you can't be tolerant to someone unless you disagree with them. True tolerance in Birmingham and on the world stage and in your life is holding opposing opinions very, very strongly but acknowledging them with people and not, in my favourite violent act, headbutting them about it. That's tolerance. Now, as I close, I want to ask, is it really, really possible to live like this, to hold a specific religious conviction, which I do, I believe in Jesus Christ, He's the only God for me. I reject all other religious expressions because I'm a Christian. Is that actually possible to to live in a peaceful way, in a generous way, in a loving way, in a diverse way? 
Are Charlotte and Dan doomed to become those sorts of people who just, no, I'm a Christian, I hate everyone? Is that what it has to look like? I want to say no. And so I want to finish. I want to say Christians who follow Jesus Christ have, more than anybody, a unique responsibility and a unique motivation and power to create communities of diversity and difference that flourish in a city. And I'll show you why I think that. And I I think that because of this idea of baptism, uh, which I'm not just trying to crowbar in, but a little bit. Um, Baptism, when someone gets baptised, as we've said, they are um, mirroring and identifying themselves with what happened to Jesus. It's not primarily about Dan and Charlotte today. It's just their response to what happened to Jesus. That's the big thing. And it shows us that Jesus died. And when people think about Jesus' death, and as you think about that when you see them getting baptised, that death is a very specific sort of death. He didn't die by accident. He didn't die by old age. He didn't even primarily die because he was victim of an unjust trial and betrayed by his friend and murdered by the Romans, though that is all true. The primary reason Jesus died was because he chose to. And just look at this uh, word in John 10 um, from Jesus. He says this, I sacrifice my life. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. This is the biggest, strongest way, truth and life guy you've ever met. Laying himself down and making himself nothing and giving himself away. And you say, what's that got to do with tolerance in Birmingham or who did he give himself away for was it just his mates was it just those of his own ethnicity those who he agrees with was it just his boys his camp well look at the type of person that the bible says Jesus died for Um, Paul in Romans uh, which is a letter in the New Testament says this when we were utterly helpless Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners and by that word it's such a loaded word isn't it What he essentially means is those who were opposed to me, those who believed differently and acted differently to me, those who were on the other team, if you like. And he comes into the world and dies for sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God, this God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners, whilst we were still opposed to him. And in the Christian God, therefore, what you have at the centre of the universe is the sort of God who bleeds for people who think differently to him, who bleeds for his enemies. That's why Jesus could say with no kind of uh, irony, love your enemies, because he did it to the end in laying his life down. And now in baptism, Charlotte and Dan, as they go down into the water and come back up, they're saying that I associate myself with that guy, with the sort of God who goes down and dies for people. And I now want my life to be about him. And I want to live in this city for him. And that doesn't mean that they get their fingers out and they start wagging them at everybody different. No, they go and they live a life of love and laying themselves down, even while they acknowledge that there are some people that they disagree with. That's the power of the Christian message and the Christian God in a life is it allows you to strongly disagree with people while saying, I'd rather bleed for you than stab you. 
That's a stunning thing. So there we go. I reckon more people with a posture like that in the world would be a good thing.